0: Thanks, Pastor Andrew. Um, I really do appreciate the chance to be back here at Christian Layman. Uh, I, drew, I feel almost like uh, you guys are sister churches. Like for a long time, I was at um, I was in a Covenant Church in, uh, in in Oakland, and now I'm in a Covenant Church in Berkeley. And so I know we know a lot of the same people, and I feel like we together we are the body of Christ in the East Bay. And I was also really impressed that you all have this sermon series going this summer. Like, a lot of churches sort of mail it in in the summer, and you guys, like, take on, like, politics and religion and money and, like, so, wow, I'm a little intimidated. But I'm glad to be here with you and to be, again, like, part of the money story that we're all kind of living out together. Um, So I'd love to begin uh, by asking you just to imagine something. And, like, seriously, I'd like you to imagine sitting down with Jesus as your financial advisor what would that look like? It would actually not look like this icon. Jesus was probably a shortish Middle Eastern looking man with bare feet. So imagine he comes into your house and you know, you serve him refreshments and he sits down at your table and you would begin to ask him the serious financial questions that you have in your life. Like for some of you that would be like, how much do we save for our kids, uh, our kids college? How much do we save for, how much are we putting in our 401k? What are we doing? Like, are we doing a market index fund? Are we investing in real estate? Like, these are the things some of you are thinking about. Um, some of you are probably thinking about, what am I doing with all this college debt I'm amassing right now? Or how do I pay off the college debt I've already amassed? Or you, you know, I guess the youth are gone now, but like my kids are thinking about how much of the 50 bucks I just got for good grades do I get? Do I invest on a phone that can actually play Pokemon Go? And what do I invest in, like, the DS, whatever these things are that they buy? These are, like, serious questions, right? Imagine with a straight face asking Jesus, like, this phone can run, like, it can run Android Marshmallow and it's only 50 bucks. What do you think, Jesus? Like, would Jesus have an answer to that? But if we're going to be real, since this is real talk, like, these are our financial questions, right? how much should I spend in remodeling my house? Like, how much should I, we have this portfolio, and it almost feels like a lot of times we're practical atheists when it comes to those things, because it feels so disconnected from the kind of holy stuff of the church. But I think Jesus would actually be a pretty amazing financial advisor, and so I want to look at that today. What would he actually say? And the first thing uh, to address and just be honest about is that the Bible often doesn't have a direct answer to these kind of questions about what should we do about, like, saving, retirement, these kinds of... Because simply, like, in New Testament and Old Testament times, they didn't have... um, It wasn't a monetized economy. They didn't live in a capitalist, consumerist society. So they are asking different questions. So a lot of people will write books, and they'll mine verses like this, and they'll kind of say, like, see, in Proverbs, it says, like, you should save because the ants are good planners, and they save. But really, you know, you can mine a few verses like that. But in the scriptures, you just don't get a direct answer to the question. It doesn't say, you know, maximize your 401k, do a market index fund with 5%, put 5% into your kid's college fund, you know, do a yearly vacation, but then every other you do a staycation. Like, it doesn't say that. So I'm not going to say it this morning because the Bible doesn't. Right? This part of the pulpit is we need to stay with the Bible. So we're going to do that. However, I do think as close as we can get, is this very interesting passage in Luke 12, which is, it's long. So it's not going to be a long sermon, but the passage is going to be long. Uh, and we're, So we're going to read it in three little chunks, but I think it's important to do it together because, to, because it's one of Jesus' longest reflections on money. And it's precipitated by this guy who comes up and basically asks Jesus a financial advising question. So let's see what Jesus says to this guy when asked a direct question. Uh, Charles Schwab type question.
1: Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who sent me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, What should I do? for I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God.
0: Thanks. So it's very interesting how, it's a pretty straightforward question, right? How do we do family inheritance? Like, Jesus, tell me a little bit about Herodian, you know, inheritance law. Can, I, can you kind can you, can of get a reference? Maybe he's asking an ethical question. But it's not a direct, there's not a a direct answer that we can give. It's a little bit like asking Jesus, Jesus, what do you think of dating? Like, can you give me some dating advice, Jesus? I mean, I'm sure Jesus could, like, magically hook you up with just the right person. But the fact is, in Second Temple Judaism 2,000 years ago, they didn't do dating. You're 12 years old, and your parents say you're marrying that guy over there. You're like, that guy? No, the other guy. You're like, oh, thank God, you know? Uh, so, So there wasn't, like, there wasn't dating. So Jesus didn't have anything to say about dating. So there wasn't retirement, so Jesus didn't have anything to say about retirement. You know, your retirement is your kids. You have six kids, so that hopefully four of them will survive into adulthood, and then you tell them, you better take care of me, kid. And so, you know, we still do that, uh, some of us, uh, but it looks a little different now. There there were no sort of 401ks. So that's one way we're not going to get a direct answer from Jesus. A little bit different questions we're asking. Jesus is constantly reframing our question. So one of the things we're going to see this morning is how Jesus reframes our question in a way that's actually profound and wise, and I think helpful to us. The other thing we see here is that we, when we ask financial questions, we're looking for rules, right? You sometimes get this, you're like, Jesus, how much should I tithe? Jesus, how much? And, and you want, like, a, give me a number, make it clear. And Jesus is irritating, because he's always, like, telling stories. You ask Jesus a straight answer, and you get a story that kind of changes everything. And that's what Jesus does here. He's like, can you tell me about inheritance? And Jesus is like, well, that's not exactly the right question. Let me tell you a story. Jesus is always doing that. And so, and, but, and, and when Jesus does give a straight answer, sometimes he, he's not being literal. Like, You're like, Jesus, what should I do about sin? Jesus is like, well, if your right hand causes you to sin, what should you do? Chop it off. Thank you for the literal advice, Jesus. You know, very helpful. Um, you know, how should I follow you? Well, you should hate your father and mother. Like, really? Like, because I do that anyway pretty well. I mean, are you, you know? Uh, So even Jesus' direct teaching, like Jesus will say, like, when you pray, go in your closet and never tell anybody about it. Is Jesus really banning all church prayer meetings? Probably not. But he's getting at something really deep about not praying to sound impressive. He's getting at something really deep about the gravity of sin, so much so that it's Like, sinning is worse than losing a body part, right? So Jesus is, both Jesus' direct commands and his stories get at something really deep, and they reframe something um, profound, but they escape our simple rules that we sometimes want. For those of us who are rule followers, Jesus can be frustrating, but we need it. And so stay with me on all of this. So in this passage, I just want to talk about a couple of things. If you have your Bible, you might want to kind of keep it open, or it'll, it'll be up there as well. But this rich man is really just a good, normal capitalist. What what he did is something that any of us would want to do. This is just good sense, right? He's working hard. His business is successful. And so he wonders, what should I do? Like, I've done well. Now I have excess capital. And so he thinks, and it's interesting, like, the passage says, "He he says to himself, to his soul, it's almost like he's cut God out of the conversation here. Like, I have a lot of money, and he doesn't go to Jesus as his financial advisor. But he says to his soul, he's this practical atheist we talked about, right? And he says, My soul, what should I do? And his answer is perfectly logical, very responsible, and very astute. He's like, well, I should build bigger barns, I should, you know, take care of the resources I've had, and I should enjoy what I've worked hard for. Who, which of us wouldn't want that? Of course. That's, that's what anybody would logically do. So why does Jesus use that as this kind of answer and in you know, a very condemning harsh, strong way. You know, it, 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 it's almost like God cuts in on this guy's conversation because he's, he's having this personal conversation with himself and God cuts in and speaks to his soul and says, um, and says you fool. He speaks in such strong language and he says, this is what happens. Your soul will be demanded of you, that soul you just talked to. Now I'm going to take it from you and then who's going to get all your money and now you have nothing. Um, and this is how it is for people who save responsibly, store up treasures for yourself, but are not rich towards God. Like, what is Jesus talking about? Like, what about the ant and the, the parable before? Like, why wouldn't we just do basic responsible savings? And I think we're gonna have to wait until the last little section of this passage because the key is rich towards God. What does it mean to be rich towards God? Does this just have to do with your inner attitude towards money? A lot of people, when they preach this passage, they'll sort of be like, don't worry, Jesus isn't really saying what he appears to be saying. What he's really saying is feel free to save exactly as everyone does. And, but just in your heart, like be rich towards God, like maybe play a lot of worship music in your car. Maybe like read the Bible once a day and then you're rich towards God. So live it up, baby, save, you know? That's not the point in the context of Luke here. Being rich towards God has a very specific meaning. And so we're going to see that soon. I'm going to come back to that. But I want you to know, this isn't just in your spirit, like, do you love Jesus or not? There is a way to be rich towards God, and it has exactly to do with how you use your money. There is one way to be rich towards God, according to this passage, and we're going to kind of come to it. But what we have in the beginning is this slightly unsettling story, which tells us at the very least that if Jesus were our financial advisor, our lifestyle would look different than normal people. Standard responsible behavior is not what Jesus is looking for if we think Jesus is really Lord of our money. If we're gonna move beyond practical atheism, we would have to tell a different our lives would have to tell a different financial story if Jesus is Lord of all of our lives, including our money. So provocative beginning. Let's continue with more provocative um, Jesus here.
1: He said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them of how much more value are you than the birds? And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? If then you are not able to do so small a thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not keep striving for what you are to eat, and what you are to drink, and do not keep worrying, for it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, strive for his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Thank you.
0: What word stuck out to you most in all of that? There's one word that keeps getting repeated over and over again. What stuck out to me is the word worrying. Right? So th- these t- first two passages in Jesus' answer to this guy's question, he addresses these kind of, they're both negative. First, in the first passage, Jesus is really trying to protect us against greed, right? Jesus, Jesus begins by saying, be on guard against all kinds of greed. It's almost like, you know, he's really concerned for us as a father. He's trying to make sure we're, 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 we're not, like, hurt. Uh, and in this case, he's talking about worry. He knows that constantly, like, like what do married couples fight about most, Statistically, it's actually money. That's what people fight about. That's what hurts marriages. What do people worry about? It's often money. And so Jesus is trying to protect us from these things. And it can feel like Jesus is a bit harsh. Uh, And, you know, like like Pastor Andrew said, when I preach, I really don't like to be harsh at all. So I sometimes find it hard to preach Jesus because I'm like, hey, it's great. I know Jeremy Lin. And Jesus is like, you're so mean, Jesus. Can you tone it down, please? Let me help you. I'll tone it down for you. So how do, we think, how do we respond to Jesus when we hear these warnings? I think we respond by hearing his love for us, actually. My daughter, um, is, she's 11 now, she's very strong-willed. And so as a parent, I was befuddled. Like My theory of parenting is as soon as you figure out like, how to parent, they'll become another age, and then you'll have no clue again. So I was, when, when my daughter, Camila, turned three, I was clueless because she was suddenly uh, moving all over the place, and she was very strong-willed, so she kept running into the street. And it was, it was terrified as a parent, because you know we don't believe in like, spanking our kids, that's just our thing. We try not to be harsh and put them in timeout. Timeouts had no effect on Camila. Run in the street, timeout, run in the street, timeout. Like, oh my gosh. I remember one day, I'll never forget, it this park in Boston, and uh, she was really excited to go to the park. We let her out of her car seat, and then I, like, turn to get something. And there's Camila in the street again. And this big SUV came up and slammed on its brakes and probably came five feet from her. And I was terrified. Like, you know, have you ever been in a situation like that where you're just, like, shaking? Like, my hands were literally shaking. And I picked up Camila, and I put her in the car. And I think I actually spanked her for the first time. I said, Camila, you never go in the street. I was so angry. I was so scared for her. I just hurt myself. <laughs> <sighs> but she never went in the street after that again. And so it was something about my love and speaking with such force because it was so dangerous. Right? It wasn't just like, "Camila, please make your bed. You know, please don't, you know, whatever. This is like life and death. So I think when Jesus talks about money for us, when he speaks harshly, he's really trying to protect us because he loves us. And he's like, Greed? man, that can destroy us. And the fact that he would identify greed as just this pretty normal guy saving and being responsible, I think that speaks something powerful to us as as people in a capitalist consumerist society. I think what it tells us is you don't have to be Donald Trump to be greedy. You just have to be a normal, well-addressed adult. And you'll be caught up in greed. Does that make sense? And I think here too, You don't have to be especially like, oh, this worry ward all the time, to be caught up in worry about money or just constantly thinking. If you could have a mental, um, like if you could play on on paper, if you could have a stenographer, like say what's in your mind, we'd see all these worries about money, whether we have a lot or whether we don't. People Jesus was, was talking to probably lived on the equivalent of $2 a day. They're constantly worrying about money. You get wealthier, you're worrying and thinking about money. So what Jesus is looking to do is to give freedom from those things. And so the way he talks about freedom here is to say, look, don't worry about it. I'll take care of that. Don't even think about it. It's almost like this Berkeley hippie irresponsible kind of thing, right? He's like, you know, flowers of the field, birds of the air, they're, you're fine. Don't worry about that. Think about other stuff. So they're like, thanks, financial advisor Jesus. He's like, don't worry about it. What's your 401k? I don't know. So like, what do we do with that? I think... Um, it's very important to be asking ourselves the question: Where is our mental and spiritual energy going? Because the solution here at the end is your your father knows you need those things. Like God knows that we are embodied. God knows that we need clothes and a place above our head. I mean, God knows we need this security. God wants to give it to us. God says, "I have you covered." Actually, what I would love you to do is this: this key. Instead, strive for His kingdom. Like, put your mental and spiritual energy into this thing called the kingdom, into this other paradigm. And so this is so far from the practical atheism of the first guy who's spending his energy figuring out what to do with his finances. Jesus is actually saying, over here, let's put our energy over here. He's reframing our questions. Does that make sense? So I think this is important, too, because a lot of times when we think about money, we think the big danger is just greed. Uh, we see consumer, we know consumerism does that to us. But I think what Jesus is saying here is a lot of times the enemy is security. And in America, we're just taught that unless you have a certain amount of savings, unless you have a certain amount of real estate investment, and sometimes the numbers are given, and they're large numbers. And in the Bay Area, they're even larger numbers. And what you're told is unless you have this much, you are not secure. And so we strive to get there. And we feel like, man, unless I'm here, if I'm just here, man, I have to do everything I can to just do this. And Jesus is actually saying, you're good. Strive for the kingdom. All right, now we get to the final point where he tells us what, um, what actually being rich towards God looks like.
1: Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also.
0: Thank you. So now Jesus is finally getting positive, right? He's warned us against these dangers, and now he's like, listen, let me tell you what is going to make you free of fear. Let me tell you how to have your heart in heaven. I think a lot of us are kind of longing to go deeper with Jesus. How could we have our heart more connected with heaven and with Jesus? Well, Jesus tells you where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Make an investment in heaven. Actually, that's what it means to be rich towards God. These phrases are actually synonymous. The idea of investing your treasure in the kingdom of heaven is the same as being rich towards God. And he talks about, um, you know, making, almost like you're constructing an investment that can't go wrong. Um, Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven. Can't be taken away from you. It's this ultimate solid security. And how do you get that? What's Jesus' ultimate answer when it comes to his financial advice? It's give to the poor. And why is that? Is it because Jesus is like a socialist or something, and he's like wanting to redistribute wealth or something? No, it's because all throughout the Bible, God is passionate towards the poor that God constantly cares about those who are the least and who are left behind. So it's not surprising that when the Son of God should come to earth, that he would tell his followers, you know, what I really want you to do is invest and give to those who are poor and left behind, because my heart is with them so much. And if you want financial advice, I would say invest in them. And at the end of the day, that's the same as investing in the kingdom of heaven. If you want your heart to be with me, do this. There you go. That's your financial advice an unfailing treasure. It's how you can be rich towards God. Give to the poor. So many times we're like, well, I just don't, don't want to just write a check. i do more than that. Like, that's not easy. That's, that's a big deal. Uh, I, was, I was on your website this week, and I was looking at your kingdom fund. And I was like, that is so cool. Like, Jesus is so excited about Christian layman's kingdom fund. Because that's what he's really into. right? The fact that you make those investments here. And it's even called the kingdom fund, just like this passage says. So you're already doing this. Like, good job. I was very encouraged. And I love your matching grant, too. Uh, like, my church, Church Without Walls, just recently, like, all of our life groups, uh, we encouraged everybody to decide to, to give to the poor somehow, collectively, in community. And so, like, you know, everybody had their phones and their laptops, and they sort of gave. they chose choose where they would give, and they pressed, and they prayed for those people. It was really cool. And then our church also, like, our missions fund matched those grants. Uh, so we're doing the same thing. It must be the Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus is so excited about that. Don't ever downplay uh, the financial sharing you, you do. That's a, that's a huge ministry. That's a huge way of following Jesus. Don't so, just sort of say, well, that's too easy. I mean, if it's too easy, then add a zero.
1: <laughs>
0: you know, keep doing that. And, you'll fi- and then you'll see, like, okay, this is hard. Help me, Jesus. It's really hard, <laughs> right? So what do we get in all this when it comes to, like, saving and all these kind of practical questions? Uh, well, if you want sort of rule-based stuff, here's a couple of quick quotes. Um, John Wesley would say this, you know, uh, save all, gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And that save actually means spe- spend less money on yourself. Like, live simply, be frugal. So make a bunch of money, that's fine. You're an engineer, great, get a raise. Go for it, that's awesome. I hope your investments do well. But then spend as little as you can on yourself and give to the poor, just like... See if you can maximize that kingdom investment. So in the history of the church, this was kind of what the financial advice was. Uh, if you go even earlier in the church, to this next slide here. Oh, this is, this is later. Oh, yeah, that, that's what I'm looking for. Um, you know, this was really, among the church fathers, this was commonly what they would say. And I think it was very accurate according to Jesus' teaching. The bread which you hold back belongs to the hungry. The coat which you guard in your locked storage chest belongs to the naked. The footwear rotting in your closet belongs to those without shoes. The silver that you keep hidden in a safe place belongs to the one in need. Thus, however many are those whom you could have provided for, so many are those whom you wrong. That's intense, that, that really convicts me. That was the standard teaching of the church for many, many years, until frankly the American dream came in and kind of pushed that out. This idea of like, Saving can actually be stealing from people who could benefit from it. So I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm, don't shoot the messenger. Right? I'm just saying this was the standard teaching of the church for a long time, um, and we can we can skip the Bonhoeffer quote; it's saying something similar. Um, but you know what? I actually prefer stories, like just like Jesus. So I, you know, the point of all this, and I don't think out of these passages, we should sort of say, "All right, I will now legalistically not save and not." kind of uh, ever do anything for retirement. I think that would be missing the point, actually. It would be like chopping off your hand. Because, um, you know, he's talking to these farmers in Palestine, and I doubt any followers of Jesus at the time said, great, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm not going to save any seed for this next year. You know, they'd do their harvest. They'd be like, Jesus will just magically make seed provide. Great. That's what it means to follow Jesus. No, of course farmers would continue to, like, take their harvest. They would save their seed for next year. Like, that's just like common sense, right? And it's not like people stopped providing for their family. 1 Timothy 5.8 says that he who does not, he or she, who doesn't provide for his relatives, especially your immediate family, is worse than an unbeliever and has denied the faith. So this idea of, yeah, you're called to provide for your family. You're called to like, make, have basic prudence in life. That's very clear. So Jesus' point here isn't to like, turn you into some irresponsible Berkeley hippie. The point of Jesus here is to say, and I'm from Berkeley, so like, you know, whatever. Um, The point of Jesus is to reframe the question and to ask, where are you really excited about investing? You know. So, I mean, let me just tell you a quick story um, of how I've tried to work this out. Because I want to be authentic, I want to be honest. This isn't a perfect story. This is just how we're trying to work it out. Because our kids are eleven. I mean, actually, eleven and thirteen now as well, and so college is coming up. And so we're trying to ask, the, and we finally have enough money. Like, I've been an unemployed pastor slash theologian, and my wife is a social worker, so we're not exactly rolling in the money. But we have tried to follow John Wesley and Jesus' advice and live as simply as we can, so we've had some money. And for a long time, we knew that maybe buying a house could be a way that we could actually give more, right? Because, you know, you're building up equity and those kinds of things. So we've really had the, the mentality of, like, how can we maximize our kingdom investment for our whole life, right? So what if saving was in that framework? What if you said, should you save? Well, it depends. If you could save and, and then maximize your kingdom investment over your whole life, then do it, right? Th- that makes sense. So we actually saved up $80,000 uh, for a down payment for a house, if we should ever like, be in one place long enough, finally, to, to buy a house. And by the time that we were in our mid-40s, Uh, the largest purchase that we had ever made as a family was a $7,000 used car. So we had zero experience in financial management at all. If we go to the last slide here. And then when we moved to Denver, we had this idea of, I thought, what if we buy an apartment complex? Because for years, our family had lived in um, neighborhoods where people don't look like us people like immigrants and lower-income folks, working-class families. We tried to be good neighbors and intentionally live in neighborhoods like that. Um, but we decided, you know, for years we've been fighting the slumlords, right, in, in kind of solidarity with our neighbors. What if we were the slumlords? <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. Um, because then, honestly, then we could honor our tenants, right? We could. You know, we lived in apartment 30, 38 on the end there, and when apartment 35 got bed bugs, we got bed bugs. So we said, we will not have bed bugs anymore. And we eliminated the bed bugs. They're called chinches in Spanish, and I will never forget that word. Um, and so I, we got the idea, and I thought, I don't know how to do any, I don't know anything about real estate, until I talked to my friend Jimmy Quach, some of you know Jimmy, he's, he's a brilliant businessman, and I'm like, hey Jimmy, could we do this? could we like, buy an apartment client? And Jimmy's like, yeah, totally, let's do it. And so because Jimmy was behind it and not just this lame unemployed like, theologian pastor guy, um, nine out of 10 of my friends who we asked to invest in this signed up. And so we, we put together an LLC. So again, totally clueless, but you know, we bought this place for 1.4 million. It has 22 units. And uh, my wife is a social worker and she knows a lot about refugees. And so most of our tenants are now... Um, a lot of them are sort of hardworking, undocumented immigrant families from Mexico. And then four of the units are, are, uh, are refugee families from Eritrea and from Burma. Um, and so on the right side, we have a community garden we put together for people. So people from all over the world are together. We're offering them um, rent that's probably $200 a month, less than, um, than a, a market price would be. And yet we make almost a 10% cap rate. So it's pretty cool. And even though we live here now, we're still managing it. We have a friend who's living in the same apartment and who's managing it. So for us, that's a, like Jesus-like stories, right? So I think that seems like a kingdom story that I hope Jesus would be excited about. Because if we need to, we can sell this, and we can put that into our kids' college education. If we need to, we can sell this and for retirement someday. Like I don't, I'm, I'm sure that God is not calling any of us to live a life of ease and luxury in the few years we have left on this earth. Uh, in our later stages of life. But I do think God wants us to be provided for and to live simple but dignified lives in our older years. That's appropriate, right? So we have something like this, which in a sense is it's an investment, um, but it's also liquid and we can then, so we're investing it in the kingdom. There are people in that complex now, and by the way, the yard looks better than it did in that picture. That's how we bought it. Um, But there are people who are currently benefiting uh, and who are, like, we're helping stop gentrification in Denver. We're helping refugee families who just could not get a place, who rents to refugees. Slumlords do. They don't have any references. They don't have job prospects. They can't speak English. Only people who want to exploit them rent to them, and so we felt like, hey, it's a kingdom thing. Let's do it. Um, so that's just one story, but I think it's a way of getting to this very real, like Jesus says, I know you need these things. I know you need retirement. I know you need, there's a sense of responsible savings. But why not figure out ways to turn those needs into kingdom investments? Another little quick story, our church is doing right now that you all could do, like the board could consider this, whatever, you know. Um, But like we have a certain amount of savings as a church, right? As an institution, it's just a standard, you know, you have have a certain amount of, of savings. But for that savings, what we've decided to do is actually put that into micro-enterprise loans for people who you know, live on less than $2 a day around the world, don't have access to capital. And so we can get that back whenever we want. It's still savings for us, but now it's sort of doing kingdom work. It's doing work for justice. It's providing people access. Um, so I think there's all kinds of really exciting ways that I'm just looking out in this church. I know that many of you are much more financially savvy than me, there's a ton of creativity. And so just like with this story, we needed a team. We needed my social worker wife. We needed Jimmy, who's, who's got his um, MBA from Cal and all this entrepreneurial experience. to get. So I think the, the last thing to say is that we live lives of maximizing our kingdom investments in community. We do it together. We're so o- we so often think of money as this private thing that we make individual decisions. What if we could kind of our resources. That's why I'm so excited about your kingdom fund. It's exactly what you're doing. So really in all of this, I don't think Jesus's word to this community is um, like hard or convicting. I think it's actually encouraging. I think Jesus is actually saying, hey, you guys get it. That's so great. Keep taking steps. What kind of creativity could God release in this community that would be another next step? That, we, that all of our churches together in the East Bay could be like releasing these stories of like, how are we responding to gentrification in, in, in this area? What kind of people are our businesses employing? Where are we? In, what's our kingdom investment story? So that if Jesus were to tell a story about our lives, it wouldn't be like that rich man. It would be about somebody who's invested their treasure in heaven. And that's not about law, it's about grace. And that's only limited by our own creativity and our own willingness to kind of invest. So as I close now, I'd just like to encourage you to do um, two simple things. If you, if, you want, if you feel like you want to respond practically, here's, here's one way. Um, put together a spreadsheet and look at all of your investments in your own family security. And then put together a spreadsheet with your investments in the kingdom. And just kind of compare those two. It's kind of a diagnostic tool, right? And, um, and just see, like, what does that look like? Where am I striving here for? Uh, That's a tool that I think my wife and I have sometimes found helpful, and it can free us from the idea of just putting a lot of intellectual energy into our own family's security, but then with your giving, it tends to just be like, oh, there's an earthquake, I'll kind of give. What if we put the same intentionality into our kingdom investments as we do into our own family's security and investments? It's just a diagnostic. And another question, another suggestion is just to get around, to get together with somebody in this church whom you trust and share the places that you're excited about investing in the kingdom. Who has God put on your heart? What what kind of people in this world who are poor, who are marginalized, who are suffering, who has God put on your heart that you could kind of come together? Like for my wife, it was refugees because that's who she worked with. Who's on your heart, Christian layman? that you can talk together and say like, man, how could we make a difference? This is really cool. So we're asking not just how much do I have to give, but we're asking, hey, what would it take? What would it take to really make a difference? And I just think you will meet Jesus in that, and you will see lots of stories of grace throughout. So I hope that you can, um, I hope you can hear Jesus's words of encouragement, and I would, I would love to hear the stories Uh, that come out of responses to this. And I I really do sincerely appreciate the story that you're already telling. And I find it a privilege to be family together in the Bay Area. Could I just pray for you real quick? So, Jesus, um, we receive your words. We know that they are strong. But we pray that we would receive them as life-giving and as hopeful. And we pray that you would give us a little bit more of your strength, Jesus. Lord, we know that what you're saying just almost doesn't make any sense in our current context. And what we've learned from our culture and from our families, Lord, we are just, like, struggled to even say, like, what would that be like? So, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us strength and grace and creativity to break through some of that, Lord. I pray that you would create new stories. Um, and I just pray for hope, Lord, in this time when there's so much fear and, and, and anger around us, Lord. I pray that we would be, that this would be a true space of grace, God. And I thank you for how your spirit has already worked, and Lord, I know that you're confident of more good to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.